silence killers in our country today. It's a killer that is unseen, that lurks through communities, and quietly takes life after life. It's been one of the contributing causes of a dip in life expectancy in our country. If you look at life expectancy charts, it increases, it increases, and then it begins to dip off in recent years. What is it that I'm referring to? You say, well, maybe it's cancer. We, we know individuals who have cancer. We know the devastation that brings. Maybe it's heart disease or, or hypertension. Maybe it's some other kind of malady or we had a pandemic over recent years. Though all of those things have been deadly and are deadly, the silent killer that I'm talking about this morning that I want to address from God's word is despair. Despair. In 2015, there was a scientific paper that was put out that studied death rates in our country, and it attributed an alarming number of deaths to what are called deaths of despair. When people going through life realize they don't have any more hope or purpose in what they're doing. When everything in front of them just seems bleak and gray and pointless. When hope seems like an empty word. It's despair that drives the radical increase in drug overdoses. When people think, there's nothing here, so let me try to medicate away my problem and try to escape from it. It's what has led to the alarming increase in suicides in our country. And you can think of all of the cascading other disasters that flow from that, drunk driving accidents, liver failure, and so much more that comes as a result of people facing despair and throwing their hands up. It's in despair and isolation that many turn to the empty hopes of a full bottle, that many try to find escape from the hatch of of addictions. Grief sends others down in a downward spiral into just self-destructive behaviors. Others try to sort of medicate away their problems with an addiction to entertainment, just binge on Netflix or scroll on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram to just try to block out the pain, block out the noise. Other people, low-grade despair is not deadly, but it's just a constant feature of life. Though it does not maybe take their lives, it seems to suck the life out of life, to take the color out of the picture. It's like clouds that just hang overhead that are drooping down like fog. It's like casting life in a drab gray. What is despair? Despair is simply taking hopelessness as a worldview and accepting it as a way of life. It's the belief that, it's the resignation to this idea that things are never going to get better and there is no light at the end of the tunnel and if it is, it's a train that's coming right at me. That's despair. I want to just ask a question. Have you ever found yourself there? Maybe you find yourself there this morning. You're like, that's that's me. I'm somewhere on that despair spectrum. And sometimes we assume that things like despair and depression, anxiety, those belong to the realm of therapy, not the realm of theology. I want to go after that assertion this morning to say that the Bible does indeed speak to these realities. The Bible does indeed address us right where we are. The Bible does speak to what are commonly called mental illnesses and despair and depression. And Psalm 130 is one of those passages that does precisely that. What do you do when you find yourself in the depths? What do you do when you find yourself in despair? What do you do when you find yourself in that place of gnawing pain? 
What's the roadmap? Where do you go? Where do you turn? Now, that despair may be brought on by loneliness. That's a huge problem. We're in the midst of a pandemic of loneliness in our world today. It might be brought on by guilt, that there's just some, something in your past, something going on in your life right now that you just know is not right, and the guilt continues to drag you down. Maybe it's brought on by shame. Something happened to you, or something was exposed in your life that has just brought embarrassment, brought shame. Maybe it's some trauma that just continues to hang on, or loss. Psalm 130 gives us a roadmap. And not only Psalm 130, we could go to Psalm 77, we could go to Psalm 42, Psalm 43. We're starting a series this morning called Real Psalms, Real Life. The book of Psalms is one of the most treasured books in the Bible for Christians throughout history, for believers throughout history, because it does speak to the reality of life. If you were to kind of walk into back when there were Christian bookstores, anybody remember those Christian bookstores? We used to have those. There were all of these books about sort of happiness and smiling people on the cover and how to achieve success. And you might get the impression that the Christian life is meant to be unending success and happiness. And if you don't have it, then fake it until you make it kind of thing. You go into your average evangelical church, the songs are all going to be upbeat and happy and bright. There was an article written a few years ago from Carl Truman asking the question, what can miserable Christians sing? The book of Psalms uh, gives us different types of psalms. That's one of the things that's amazing. There are psalms of thanksgiving that just rejoice in God's goodness. There are psalms of praise that just reflect on who God is. There are psalms of wisdom that go through Israel's history and God's work in Israel's history. But you know the largest category of psalms are what are called psalms of lament. When was the last time you heard that word? Lament. How well do Christians lament and face up suffering and pain, whether that is emotional or physical pain, and take it to God? We tend to sort of isolate our pain and personalize our pain and privatize our pain. Yet the Psalms were written for Israel and for subsequent generations of God's people throughout redemptive history to have language for our lament, for have words to say when the pain is gnawing. And these were meant to be sung corporately. These are meant for us as God's people together to say, that's me as well, and I can enter into that song. So follow along as I read Psalm 130. Psalm 130, beginning with the title, it is a song of degrees. That word just means ascent. These were sung by pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem for festivals. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy And with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You can imagine the the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem every year as they're traveling, as they're walking the dusty roads. They would sing this this section of Psalms, the section of the Psalter, as they passed their journey by, as they envisioned themselves going up closer to the house of God, drawing near to his presence on the dusty road between home and Jerusalem. And these are great psalms for us as we, too, walk the dusty road between our earthly home and our heavenly Jerusalem, as we go through the nastiness of life. They're reminders of the ups and downs of life that mark our walk with God, what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. 
But even within the psalm itself, you can sense upward motion from the depths of despair, and we end on the heights of hope. So how do we get from the depths of despair to the heights of hope? You'll notice there's some repetition that goes on in this psalm. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, there is Lord, and then we have Lord again. Notice one is capital, all capital, Yahweh, the I am, and the other word is Lord Adonai, the the master. We get that again in verses 3 and 4. We get that duplication again in verses 5 and 6, and duplication again in verses 7 and 8. These give us four stanzas of two verses each. This is just built into the structure that I'm just going to call four steps from the depths of despair to the heights of hope. Four steps. These songs of lament typically have movements where you turn to God, you you take your complaint to God, you ask him boldly for help, and then you declare your trust. We get that here. Out of the depths I cry to you, there's the address to God. The mention of the depths is the complaint that is being laid out. Some of the psalms of lament will lay the complaint out to God very directly, very specifically. Then there is this asking boldly. It's built into verses 3 and 4. God, would you forgive? That's the assumed statement. And then there's a declaration of trust, verses 5 down to verse 8. Let's walk through these four steps. What do you do when you're in the depths of the despair? Number one, out of the depths, turn to God. Okay, I know this seems really obvious. Out of the depths, I've cried to you. Out of the depths, I'm crying to you, calling out to you right now. But it's not always obvious. In our pain, our prayers often fall silent. In our pain, we often turn inward, and we don't express what's going on in our hearts. Now, the the term depths, it refers to the ocean depths. It's a picture in Hebrew of chaos and turmoil and danger. Just imagine yourself floating around out in the ocean with waves crashing around you, and you're barely keeping your head above water, and all you can see in every direction is more water. That's the picture. The picture here is someone in deep water, waves crashing over his head, gasping for air, and flailing helplessly. Okay, that's a vivid picture of so much mental and emotional and spiritual distress that we face. One of the hallmarks of psalms like this is just the honest description of life. Honest description of life. We need to banish from our minds, beloved, this notion that the Christian life will be marked by prosperity and peace and harmony and happiness if we just say the right things and utter the right words. God is sort of obligated to make life great for us. Banish from your mind the notion that the Christian life will be a walk in the park. Sometimes it is flailing on an ocean. Banish from your mind the notion that Christians shouldn't experience depression, shouldn't experience grief. Banish from your mind the notion that suffering shouldn't ambush us like it does other people. It does. It does. We're going to go through hard times. Now, contextually, the depths the psalmist is referring to, verse 3, he mentions iniquities. Verse 4, he mentions forgiveness. Verse 7, he mentions redemption. This is despair that's brought about by guilt. I think if we're honest, far more of our despair and anxiety and depression and heartache is brought about by our own guilt than we care to admit. We'd rather blame nurture and nature for a lot of our problems and be like, this is because of the way I was brought up and because of chemical imbalances in my brain. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's a contributing context. But how often is our despair brought on by the fact that we live in a fallen world, that we ourselves are fallen? Not always, but often. But sometimes the the depths of despair are just more general than that. It's when God feels distant and salvation seems hopeless and everything seems pointless. The picture here is sin has thrown us into the middle of an ocean and we don't know how to swim. That's where we're at without Christ. We're, We're in this drowning in this ocean of guilt and sin and we don't know how to swim and deliverance must come from somewhere else. 
This phrase conveys a sense of being overwhelmed, of wallowing in unending gloom and perpetual hopelessness. It's a sense of drifting, maybe in grief. It's the gnawing darkness, the lingering shadows of depression, the crippling heartache that comes from depression. And when you're in the depths, maybe this describes where you're at. Your old ambitions and goals just don't do it anymore. Simple survival through another dreary day is all that you seem to be able to do. And then tomorrow's going to come, and you're going to do it again, and you're going to do it again, and you're going to do it again. So what do you do when you're in that place where you don't even feel like you can feel anymore? What do you do when you're in the depths? Out of the depths, I cry to you. Turn to God. Turn in your pain out of the depths, but turn in prayer. Notice how personal I have cried to thee, O Lord. It's personal. That word call expresses earnestness and urgency and help, I'm drowning. Throw the life preserver in. This is the individual cry of lament, the call for God to intervene and hear. What is lament? What is biblical lament? Biblical lament is pain that turns to prayer. It's been said, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. Okay, Anybody can cry and say, this hurts, but it takes faith to say, in the middle of my pain, I'm going to call to God. You take the pain and you cry out to God. Now, that may seem really like obvious, like, thanks, Captain Obvious, but it's not natural for us to turn to God in our pain. It's not natural for us to turn to him like that. Mark Vrogop defines, defines lament this way. It is prayer and pain that leads to trust. That's a great definition. So even when it hurts, resolve to pray. Make the decision to say, I'm not going to operate on my feelings because I don't feel like praying. I'm going to operate on faith. Rather than doing the natural thing of shutting God out in silence, the Psalms show us a better way. Honest, open, faith-filled lament. Okay, we live, we live in a world that says your emotions are your identity. What you feel is who you are. That's not right. Others will say, well, emotions should never be shown. I'm going to suppress them and hide them. The biblical way is entirely different. Rather than saying emotions are who you are or emotions are sort of a cancerous tumor that needs to be removed, the Bible sees emotions as a God-given ability that ought to be expressed to God in worship. So whatever you're feeling, take it to God in prayer. Turn to him, pray, don't stop praying, keep crying out to Yahweh, the, 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 the I am, the unchanging God. You see, silent despair when you say, I just hurt so bad, I'm not going to talk to God anymore, that nurtures unbelief. Unbelief flourishes in that, like an algae bloom in a hot pool. Honest lament, however, expresses faith. Even when the faith is, God, would you hear? Notice verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. There's an insinuation here is, God, are you out there? Are you listening? There's an honesty to this. Now, he's not accusing God. It's never, it is a sin to be angry with God. But it is not a sin to complain to God. We need to take our complaint honestly to God. We need to take our, our needs honestly to the throne of grace and come boldly with every need and every anxiety and every hurt. The prayer here is that to know that someone, a capital S someone, is out there who knows and understands. Those of you who have gone through grief, like the sense that is isolation, that nobody, nobody gets, it can really be, make you feel like you're all alone in the world. 
We sang a minute ago, however, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. That even if no one on earth can understand what you are going through, there is one in heaven who is touched with the feelings of your weakness. There is one in heaven who wept at Lazarus' tomb. There is one in heaven who passed through suffering and pain and agony and isolation and loneliness, who cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He understands. He gets it. He says, Come boldly. Come boldly. You notice these, there's only one request that's explicitly noted, that's expressly, expressly made in the psalm, and it's this. God, would you just listen? Would you hear? Now, that word translated supplications in verse 2 is the idea of favor. So it's not just, God, hear me and, and say, yep, we've received the report. You know, that's really annoying when you're trying to sort of run a complaint up the flagpole at work or something. Like, yep, we got it. It's on our desk. You're like, great. It's going to disappear into a filing cabinet and never be seen from again. The sense here of this word is that, God, you've heard my request, and you're going to respond with favor and with grace to me in my pain in my heartache. So in your pain, out of the depths, turn to God, and maybe I should word it this way, keep turning to God. This is not going to be a one and done, I'm going to go forward at a church invitation and have this crisis moment where I'm done with. It's a daily, maybe even an hourly, I'm going to keep going back to God. Let me give you an example over in Psalm... Uh, 69, Psalm 69. Similar idea here. Chief musician upon Shoshanim, Psalm of David. He says this, Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. It's the same language. I'm, I'm drowning. The water is right here. I sink in deep mire. Like my feet are sort of stuck in mud. Where there's no standing, I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. It's just the unbroken pain and my throat is dried. Like I've cried so much that I've run out of tears and moisture. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. What a picture. That's not just a, okay, I'm going to turn to God one time. God, make it all better. Here's a band-aid. But repeatedly making it our habit to turn to him again and again. So out of the depths, turn to God. That's the first crucial step. You're drowning in the swimming pool. There's a lifeguard. Help me, right? That's where it starts. But the second step, out of the depths, out of the depths, not only should we turn to God in prayer, out of the depths, secondly, we must trust God's grace. So look at verses 3 and 4 of our, our passage. Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But... There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So there is this the sense of my only hope is God's grace, his willingness and his readiness to forgive my sin. I want to be clear, not all suffering is the result of sin. Right? Not all despair is the result of guilt, but much of it is. Uh, and some psalms will address despair that's brought on by oppression, by enemies. We're going to deal with some of those in coming weeks. But the implication here is that the chief need of the psalmist, we don't know who the psalmist is, is forgiveness. He says, God, if you were to, all the sins that I commit, if you were to record those and observe those and hold me to account for those, if you were to record iniquities, who should stand? In other words, you were to stand before God's judgment bar, before God's tribunal, and God were to say, all right, let's just evaluate your life based on what you said, thought, did, desired. 
It says, there would not be a one of us in all the universe who would stand before God. Some people say, I want God to give me justice. You know what justice would mean to every person in the universe? It would mean eternal condemnation facing God's wrath in a real literal place called hell. God is infinitely holy. God is also omniscient, which means he knows everything. That, that, that secret sin that you're like, oh, nobody else knows about that. That character flaw that you think you do a pretty good job covering over. Those thoughts that go through your heart and through your mind that don't ever make it to the light of day. God sees all of it. And the bad news is, if we were to stand on the basis of what we have done, we wouldn't be able to stand. One day the books will be opened. We will stand before God. Everyone will be judged based on the things they did. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. So the psalmist is acknowledging, God, my sin is really bad. My iniquity, which is speaking sort of the sin nature that leads to us doing the things that we do. Uh, You're a sinner not because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It is who we are without Christ. He says, God, if you were to hold me to account, I'd be condemned. I'd be doomed. If we got justice, we would get wrath crashing down on us. No one would stand justified or vindicated before him. We truly stand condemned and without hope in God's sight because he's holy and we are shot through with sin. All men everywhere without exception deserve God's guilty verdict in his eternal sentence. You say, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. You know, that's sort of like here I am drowning and you just sort of tied a brick to my ankle. It's only when we realize that our condition is far worse. It's far worse than we could ever fathom that we will be ready to reach out for God's grace. So long as we think, you know what, I'm going to build my own life raft out here. I've got this. I've got my schemes. I've got my works. So long as you're saying, you know, I know I'm imperfect, but there's sort of some good features about me that I'm sure God will, will, will notice on Judgment Day. So long as you are clinging to your own works, your own hope, your own deeds, your own baptism, your own church membership, your own morality, your own decency, so long as you're clinging to anything of your own, There's no hope for you to be delivered. It's like someone who's saying, I'm not going to get into the lifeboat because I'm really awesome at treading water. And you might be a Navy SEAL, but eventually you're not going to be able to tread water anymore. Your works cannot save you. Your goodness cannot save you. Which brings us to the the fulcrum of the psalm, the hinge on which the whole thing swings. Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you. There is forgiveness. If I'm drowning in a sea of guilt, the only solution is God's grace. So what's the source of this forgiveness? What's the source of this grace? But there is forgiveness with you. It's found in God. It comes from God and Him alone. It comes as a gift, not as something that we earn. So verse 3 is all about God's justice, and verse 4 is all about God's grace. Justice, God giving us what we deserve. And grace, God giving favor that is completely and utterly undeserved, that is a gift. Now, there's some people in our world that that struggle with both of these ideas together. Some people will say, God's not actually just. He's going to overlook some sins. And this is the idea that people, I hear this a lot. Maybe you have thought this before. I just think on Judgment Day, God's going to sort of weigh my good works, my bad works. And I think I've meant well. And so on the basis of me meaning well, I think I'll make it to heaven. Or I hope that I will. That's basically saying, I hope that God's not actually just. 
Hope that God doesn't actually punish sin. Let me be honest with you, none of us actually want a God like that. When you are wronged, when you see injustice and evil in our world, you want a God of justice. We all want God to judge sin, just not mine. Okay, so we can't diminish God's glory by saying, I'm going to make it to heaven because God's going to just sort of set aside his justice for a minute, turn a blind eye to sin, sort of grade me on a curve. Other people want to diminish God's grace. This grace that so freely, verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you. Even the most vile sinner who believes can be forgiven. Even the most rebellious rebel who repents will be forgiven. Some people find that scandalous and say, yeah, but we've got to add something to that, right? I've got to do some good deeds. Baptism's got to go along in there somewhere and maybe some confession and maybe some penance and maybe some church attendance. What we get here in these two verses is God's infinite justice. He will judge every sin. And he will readily forgive any sinner. How on earth can God do both? How can God judge every sin and yet forgive any sinner without compromising either his justice or his mercy? That tension finds its resolution at the cross. We sang this morning, we stand forgiven at the cross. It's not just God being like, oh, forgive you guys for whatever reason. So there's a story in Islam where Allah has determined to forgive someone, but he's made a condition, you've got to make it to a certain village. You've got to make it to the village, and the guy dies three feet outside of the village. So Allah, in order to forgive the guy, moves the village. So it just kind of changes things around. That's not how God forgives. God forgives not by sort of arbitrarily saying, I forgive you and you and you, but no, not you. God forgives by putting sin on Jesus. And God forgives by pouring out his wrath on Jesus. God forgives by Jesus bearing our guilt, taking our sin on the cross, and utterly satisfying God's justice. So the penalty of sin is paid. When I've had conversations with Muslims, I said, your guys' problem is your God is not holy. And they kind of are taken back. No, our God's very holy. So your God can just forgive sin without actually dealing with the sin. The God of the Bible can only forgive sin if sin is dealt with. And the good news of the gospel, it has been dealt with at the cross. It has been dealt with by the finished work of Jesus rising again from the dead. That's the guarantee that my sin, no matter how great, if it's confessed, if I come to him in faith, is forgiven. That's God's grace. We can only be forgiven by the work of another. We can no more remove our own guilt then one of us could remove a tumor from our own brain. It requires the work of another. So this is striking. Now look at the end of verse 4. There is forgiveness with thee, but thou mayest be feared. Does that strike you as somewhat surprising, unexpected? God forgives so that we would fear him. I thought he would do this so we would sort of love him. Or if God's forgiving, some people would reason, if God forgives any sinner on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, that'll just lead to people sinning willy-nilly because there's forgiveness. God's given us a check. It's blank. He signed it. So I'm just going to go out and cash it however I want. But the logic here is the opposite of that. God forgives any sinner who believes, who repents on the basis of the work of Jesus. And the result of that is not us going off and just... Thanks for the grace. Now let me continue on my path of sin. The result of that is me fearing and reverencing God. So Romans 6, the logic that is the argument, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid. 
Because God's grace changes our heart. There is a power in this grace. There is a purpose in this grace. The fear here is not the cowering fear that says, oh, I don't want God. The next verse is, I'm waiting for him. It's the fear of reverence and love and respect to say, a God who is infinitely just and infinitely merciful, who has found a way to forgive the likes of me, is a God who is worthy of our worship. By the way, did you notice the fact that we're not thinking about our problems anymore? If you're following the, the steps out of the depths of despair, the way out of the depths of despair is not, the path out of despair is not found by staring at your despair. Let me just spend all day thinking about how bad I feel. And let me just go online and talk to people about how bad I feel. And let me go to a therapist and talk about how bad I feel and focus on the problem, on the problem, on the problem, on the problem. There's some people who have even conjectured all the talk about mental illness and anxiety has actually made us more mentally ill and more anxious. There's something to be said for saying, out of the depths, it's real, the pain is real, I'm going to cry to God, and then I'm getting my eyes off of the present pain onto eternal truths, the gospel. The psalmist has turned his eyes to eternal gospel realities. He He has prayed through his pain to the gospel. He's gotten to the cross. Christians need this. The gospel is the life preserver we hold on to as we bob through the depths of despair, through those oceans of pain. Sometimes we we treat the gospel as like, well, there's my, I believe it, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, now let me get on with my life. No, the gospel is what we keep on going back to again and again, because there's going to be all kinds of things are going to change in our lives. Relationships are going to change. Loved ones are going to die. Jobs are going to go away. All kinds of things will change. You're going to get older. We're going to get sick. Family members are going to move away. In the midst of all that, we need something that won't. Right? In a world of changing relationships, we need unchanging realities, and the gospel is that unchanging reality. I've quoted this before, but when uh, our friends Andy and Bryn Gleiser, uh, a few years ago, when Bryn found out she had cancer and they were sitting there in the doctor's office, the statement he made and that he has shared with us before They looked at each other and says, well, nothing eternal has changed. Nothing eternal has changed. Beloved, if you're putting your hope in, my family's always going to be here for me, or this job is always going to give me the security that I need, or this happiness, this level of income is going to give me the security I need, what happens when that changes? But if you say, I'm putting my hope in something that won't change, all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You need that rock. You need that anchor. You need that unchanging reality. Now, one other comment before we move on. When you're in despair, you often believe some really contradictory things. Uh, Sometimes we need to sort of cut through the garbage in our own minds and be like, man, I am believing and thinking some things that are just manifestly false and not real. But we'll, we'll say things like this. I don't deserve this. I'm such a good person. And we'll delve into the deeper self-pity. I'm, I don't deserve this. I, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then two minutes later, and maybe you've had this conversation in your head, I'm so worthless and terrible. I deserve this, and God and others just don't care for me. And you lurch from, I don't deserve this, too. I'm worthless, and I don't deserve this, and I'm worthless. You realize how these two verses cut through those lies, just slice through those lies. They actually say in verse 3, you actually are far worse than you ever would care to admit. You are far more deserving of God's wrath than you would ever care to admit. And whatever you're facing is actually better than what you deserve. And yet verse 4 says, 
God's grace is more abundant than you could ever fathom. And you are more loved than you could ever describe. So both of these things, instead of saying the lie, I'm worthless and hopeless, to say, no, you actually are loved by a God who has forgiven you, who sent his son to die on the cross. And you are a person who does deserve God's wrath. It cuts through both of those lies and helps us think straight. So many of our emotions and our actions flow out of the, 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 the way that we think that is inaccurate and twisted. Verses 3 and 4 straighten out our twisted thinking to say, we are far more guilty and undeserving of God's mercy than we care to admit. And yet God's forgiveness is far more bounteous and far more free and far more lasting than we would ever realize. I love the quote from Tim Keller that he would say often, The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. I love that. You see, the gospel, this good news of Jesus, of forgiveness, cuts the taproot out of our spiraling despair. And it's only the gospel that can demolish that foundation of fear in our hearts. It doesn't whisper lies to us to try to make us feel better. It preaches truth. And so we need to go back to that again and again and again. So out of the depths, you turn to God in prayer. Out of the depths, you trust, you take hold of God's grace. Notice how we're beginning to move up out of it. We're taking the focus off the depths, and now we've found a life preserver. We're being pulled out of the sea, so to speak. Number three, out of the depths. Next, we must treasure God's promise. So verses five and six, we get this, I will wait for you, as, as I sang a minute ago. This, the focus no longer is on me and my problems, but the longing is for God. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word, or we could even render it promise. I'm hoping in God's promise. I'm putting my confidence in what he has said he would do and in his trustworthiness. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. More than they that watch for the morning. Here, here's a principle for you. That which we treasure, we willingly wait for. Right? That which we treasure, we willingly wait for. You say, this is valuable enough, I'm willing to wait in line for this. So you're going to a restaurant, you're going into Starbucks to get your caramelized macchiato latte with, the, with, with no fat cream and double the sleeve and no cup and all of this stuff. And there's a line of six people in front of you. Um, and they're going really slow because they're all modifying their drinks like crazy and you're going to be there for an hour to get your thing. You'll only stay in that if you really, really want your caramelized latte, whatever thingy-majigger from Starbucks, right? You only stay if that's a valuable object to wait for. If the line's really long, you're like, I'm going to go to Dunkin'. They have better coffee anyway. And there, off you go. Um, I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait is a declaration of saying, I'm treasuring God's presence and God's promise. So the psalmist, notice what he is longing for now, is not mere relief from pain. To treat God as simply a sort of a, a medication for our pain is to basically make an idol out of feeling good. God's a means to an end. This is treating God not as a means, but as the end, as the goal, as the thing we're waiting for, as the one that we want and that we long for. So you can even replace this waiting with, I'm longing for the Lord. I'm longing for the day that I have his presence face to face. We get that word soul. My soul waits that's not to say my soul is sort of a different thing than me, but this is to say my whole being is longing for and wanting God. 
So what sustains your faith while you await the storm to end? We get two metaphors here. In verse 1, it's the metaphor of storm. Verse 6, the metaphor of night. What sustains you? This text is saying, in his word, I hope, God's promises. Sometimes pain will reveal the things that we really treasure. We realize, I'm not actually waiting and longing for God. A few years ago, if I remember rightly, here in Mobile, there was one of the hurricanes that came. And whenever it happens, you know, the, the beaches move around. And hurricanes will unearth at times down like on Dauphin Island. Oh, look, here's an old ship that's been buried out there in the sand for years and years and years. Sometimes suffering and pain will do that in our own hearts. Those waves will unearth idols, things that we treasure more than God in our hearts. And when we lose them, the fact that we despair over losing them tells us those idols were idols and not just good things that we enjoyed. So, for example, it is normal and natural and right to grieve the loss of a loved one. There's probably, there's probably something problematic if there's not some kind of, oh, this hurts. But it's another thing entirely for you to say, I have no point in living whatsoever anymore without this person. That's telling us, telling you, that's your grief is telling your heart, that individual went from, a, from, from someone that was loved as a gift from God to really sliding into the place of God himself. An idol is something you cannot live without. And sometimes God in his kindness will take them from us to help us realize we're not actually waiting for him and longing for him. Tim Keller goes on to say this, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Now we're seeing the opposite happen here in verses 5 and 6. The psalmist has gotten to the place where he's like, God is the one that I want. He's the one that I long for. I'm treasuring him above everything else. I'm longing for him as my ultimate joy, as my eternal hope, as my greatest treasure. Now I love verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. The picture here is someone maybe standing on the walls of Jerusalem as the watchman. We get that image in Ezekiel. Your job is to stand, scan the horizon to make sure there's not an enemy sneak attack that's going to try to break into the city at night. Let's be honest. Most nights you're going to stand out there and you're going to see absolutely nothing. It's going to be boring. You're going to pace the walls. No enemy are going to come. And your your shift is, say, you've got uh, from... Midnight to sunrise, that's your shift. It's going to be long, it's going to be boring, it's going to be dark. But guess what? You know something is going to happen. The sun is going to come up. And when the sun coming up means I get off my shift, those of you who have ever worked night shift know that awaiting dawn coming is sort of a relief. But here's the difference. It might be a really long night and the hours may drag on and on and on in boredom and monotony, but dawn always comes, right? So there's a sense in which he's saying, I'm hoping for God not like I'm sitting on, you ever sit on hold for AT&T for, for a, an agent will be with you soon. And they never, they never come, like they don't have any agents. Uh, they say the IRS, only 20% of people who ever call and reach out to them ever get to talk to someone. There's that kind of waiting, which is pretty hopeless. Like, yeah, there's probably no one who's going to actually pick up. I'm going to listen to this lousy music for the next four hours. And then when they do, it's going to sort of disconnect. I'm going to do it all over again. Um, Never been frustrated with that, right? Uh, This is waiting. This is more like waiting for Christmas. Christmas might be a long way off, but it's going to come. God may seem distant, but he is going to come. God's promise does not seem to be reality yet, but it will be soon. There's certainty. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. You see, he's decisively set his faith in God in spite of the pain. Trusting God, treasuring God, 
never just happens by osmosis. It's the, it's the decision of faith to say, I'm going to believe God's promises even when my feelings say otherwise. This should help you when you're in a place where you're like, I'm not feeling anything, so I don't want to do anything. That's the moment where you say, I'm not going to live by feelings. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to trust God's promise for the next moment, for the next day. But this final point here in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist then sort of expands his statements, not just to himself, praying to God. Now he speaks to Israel. Let Israel hope in the Lord. So he's saying, what God did for me, he can do for you. He's gotten me out of the depths of despair to the heights of hope, and he can do the same for you. For with the Lord there is mercy. Now he said earlier, with the Lord there is forgiveness. He's saying, what God did for me, he can do with you. This is his character, his his covenant loyalty that he had revealed on Mount Sinai when he revealed his glory to Moses, that he is a God of mercy. And with him is plenteous redemption. Redemption is ransom. Redemption is deliverance. God's a God who is abundant in grace. Paul put it this way. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So where sin is sort of doing addition, arithmetic, God's grace is doing multiplication, is going up exponentially. God's grace is infinitely greater than all of our sin. So there's this call to Israel. When you get out of the depths, there comes a point where you teach God's people by sharing your experience. Maybe at points along the way, you bring God's people in on your lament. Many of these lament psalms are corporate. Uh, we, we are a very hyper-privatized age where we try to keep our pain to ourselves. The Bible says, actually, this, sh- this pain should be shared with God's people. The same is true with the deliverance on the other side. He calls to God's people. So his experience in verses 1 to 6 prompts this exhortation in verses 7 and 8. So what's the basis of it? He says, let Israel hope in the Lord for reason, ground. Here's the reason why you hope in the Lord, not just so, sort of some vague, I'm going to trust in God. With the Lord, there is mercy. The basis for this hope, the basis for going to war against despair is the character of God. Theology can do something that therapy can never do. Point you to the unchanging eternal reality that there is mercy with the Lord. There is plenteous redemption with him. Something that is eternally true even when everything around us changes. God's a God of covenant love, a God of abundant redemption, a God of immense grace, a God of infinite mercy, a God of unending love. So our goal should be to say, I don't want to stay in the depths of despair. Sometimes we like to stay in the depths of despair. It feels better to feel sorry for ourselves and focus on ourselves, to say, I'm going to get out of the depths of despair and focus on God and then other people. Sometimes we like the depths of despair because it gives us an excuse to not face down our responsibilities Sorry, I'm not going to do the dishes today. I'm feeling really down. God calls us to say, turn to me in the depths of despair. Trust my grace, the gospel. Take hold of the gospel. Now, verse 8 ends on this glorious note. Going from the, I've cried out of the depths, the past, the present. We now look to the future. He will redeem, future tense, Israel from some of his iniquities. No, from all his iniquities. He's looking forward, of course, to the cross of Christ, but looking through the cross to a new heaven and a new earth on the other side. There's this gloriously good promise. Now, the word order here makes it the point, and he shall redeem Israel. Normally, Hebrew goes verb then subject, but it flips the order here, subject and then verb to say, he and he alone will redeem Israel. He's going to, do, he's going to redeem and deliver and save without your help or mine. 
It's God and God alone. But now he's looking past from the past of forgiveness to a future of glorification from earth to heaven. You see, one day final redemption will come. We believe as Christians, one day the pain that you are feeling, it might last the rest of your life, but pain will one day come to an end for God's people. Sorrow, weeping may last a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We believe the day is coming when there's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth. We have the promise of it. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that a new heaven and a new earth has already begun. So we're awaiting the coming of Jesus to make a new heaven and a new earth. Not like people waiting on the line for AT&T, but like people waiting for the dawn to come. We're like a child awaiting Christmas to endure just a few more weeks of school and homework. But we know Christmas is going to come every December 25th. It's that reality that God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's the reality that one day we will have that which has been promised, that which we long for, that which God has guaranteed to us that enables us to say, I'm going to keep trusting today, and I'm going to keep trusting tomorrow, and I'm going to keep turning to God out of the depths, and I'm going to keep choosing to trust his grace and treasure his promise. So it is seizing the promise of God that allows us to put despair to flight. It's that reality that we must cling to. It's the promise of glory. That, the promise of glory means that suffering will not be final. That sin will not always be. That tears will not always flow. And that all pain will one day be banished. That's the heights of hope right there, beloved. Now, if you're here today, and you have never taken the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, most of what I have said here this morning won't do much for you at all. There may be some band-aids that you can put on the pain, some ways to limp through. The heart of this is the fact that there is forgiveness with God. If you come to God today, acknowledging that I have no business to stand before you, I'm a condemned sinner, you come to him and you take his mercy by faith, trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says that anyone anywhere who repents and believes will be forgiven and find mercy and grace. Now, for those of you who are Christians, you might find yourself in the depth. What a roadmap here. Take Psalm 130 and make it your own. Take that journal that we're going to be giving you today and say, I'm going to start making it a point to write out these prayers to God of instead of holding it all in or just going and talking it through with someone, I'm going to take it to God in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let's bow together as Chris comes to lead us. Father, may we cry to you out of our depths. May we trust the promise that you've made that 